Well, praise the Lord. I hope you're excited this Sunday. This Sunday, again, is a very special Sunday. And anyone know what's so special about this Sunday? Anyone know? No? It's, is it? There you go. Well, praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. We get to meet together and praise the Lord every single Sunday to glorify, to magnify our great God. And we're so thankful again that we get to meet together to praise our great God. And so, anyways, it, it isn't... Uh, Nancy, it's wonderful that it's your your birthday, and it certainly, again, isn't a Super Bowl. You know, uh, we realize that so many people will be gathering. Um, um, uh, They've idolized, again, sports. I'm going to challenge you. If you're not doing anything tonight, come out tonight. We're going to be talking about spiritual warfare, what spiritual warfare is what it isn't, and uh, we'll have a great time that happens to be again in the Word. But, uh, but, uh, but I'm so excited about this text of Scripture because, again, it really speaks, right? right? It's incredible. When you think of the tension that's going on at this time, I mean, it's absolutely amazing because Stephen is brought forward. He's brought up again on charges of speaking against temple worship, in other words, trying to destroy the worship to this one true God. And he is also, again, condemned uh, for speaking against the law of God. And both of these are punishable by death. You know, and I always love when you go to the book of Acts and you look at, again, these early believers, and they know what is at stake. But to see their response and put ourselves in the text, you know, ask ourselves, you know, how would we respond? If this was us, how would we respond? You know, what would we say? What would we do? Would we give gospel light? Would we somehow, again, water down the message to make it more appealing to the audience that happens to begin right here? How would we respond to this? You know, and the real question is, how are we responding now? You know, what message are we giving maybe to our spouse, maybe to our children, maybe to somebody else we happen to begin in conflict with? Because Stephen knows beyond a shadow of a doubt what happens to be at stake. And so he opens up the Old Testament. He walks them through the Old Testament. Again, various different narrative passages to show them that their forefathers, who they revered so much, rejected Jesus, rejected God time and time again, God's appointed leader. You know, in the last few weeks, we've looked at Moses. And we looked at Moses, and remember what Moses is. Moses is an example of Jesus, isn't he? He's an illustration, again, of this one who would come, this greater one, the Christ. And the key verse that happens to be, again, right there is in in verse number 35. And it says, this Moses... Whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. And it's amazing, again, to look at this, isn't it? Because the the incident that it's talking about, again, this this Moses who was rejected, is looking back. And it's looking back to that time where he tries to break up a fight between two fellow Israelites. And they say, you know, who, who has made you ruler? Who, who has made you, again, the one who happens to be over us? Didn't you kill that Egyptian? And certainly Moses has to go into the wilderness. He has to learn many valuable lessons. He has to be humbled. He cannot trust in himself. But it was evident to all of Israel at this time that the Redeemer, that the chosen one, was none other, none other than Moses. And they rejected him. And they rejected him and rejected him. I mean, can you imagine being in Egypt at that time, seeing those ten plagues that take place? You know, seeing the the dividing of the Red Sea, seeing many of the miracles, many of the provisions that God provided in the wilderness. And time and time and time and time again, you doubt God's man and you doubt God himself that he will provide what is absolutely necessary for 40 years. You know, this goes on. You know, time and time again. 
You know, and, and, and again, remember who Moses is representative of uh, Jesus Christ. But also look at verses 37 and 38. It says, this, this is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai, Sinai and with your fathers. He received oracles to give you. Now, if you look at verses 37 and 38, and also back to verse number 38, uh, 36, verse number 36 starts off this way. This man, verse number 37, we have, this is the Moses, and verse number 38 has, this is the one. And when you look at that, it's talking about Moses, and it's talking about his ministry among Israel. And this is so key, because each time it talks about his ministry, it's talking about a different function. But all three of these functions are the same in, in, in this, that they're all revelation from God, right? So the first one is talking about these mighty miracles, these mighty signs, these mighty uh, wonders that were done. And through Moses, what God is saying, I am the God of all creation. There is none other beside me. And he gives, again, this wonderful revelation. The next one is prophetic. In other words, God controls time. And he speaks again of this great one that would come like Moses in the same spirit as Moses that would come. And, of course, that's an illusion. That's a prophecy of the coming of the great one that we call our Lord and our Master, Jesus Christ. And then he gives a third revelation, and it happens to be again before Mount Sinai. We many times call it the Ten Commandments or the law that was given. And that is, again, how do we relate to this God? How do we approach this God? How do we come before him? You know, and so you have all three of those. And really, if you look at it, it's all emblematic of the, of the law and the prophets, the totality of the law and the prophets. It's amazing how um, Stephen sums all of this up. This is all revelation. And it's also incredible to see how Israel rejected all three modes of revelation from God. You know, and when you look at Israel, and we, we say, what is special about Israel? What is special about it, this little nation? You know, what is special about the relationship with God? And we would say, well, God called them. God chose them out of all the nations that happened to begin in, in, the, uh, in the world. Not because they were great, not because they were fantastic, not because they were more moral than all the other people. He chose to call them. You know, and when we say that he called them, what do we mean? You know, and we would say this, well, God chose to relate to them differently than all the other nations that happened to be around them. Then we asked a question, well, what does it mean that God related to? How does he relate to him, uh, to, uh, to Israel? And it's through one way, right? One chief way that he relates to Israel different than all the other nations that happen to be around him. And it's through communication. It's through what we would call revelation, right? He shows them that he's the one true God through, through all of these miracles. He shows them beyond a shadow of doubt that he can provide what's necessary in their life. You know, he teaches them that he's going to control. You know, it may look tough. It may look daunting. But he's controlling all of human history through prophecy. He tells them who he is and how to relate to him. And when you look at our lives, when we call ourselves the people of God, when we tend to say we're followers of God, what do we mean? How does God relate to us? And this is how God relates to us. He relates to us through revelation. And this is what, what the Sanhedrin got wrong. They thought God related, or they, they, they were the people to God because of history, because of tradition, and not because God had spoken. And let me ask you, when we look at those words, God has spoken, when we look at Revelation, when we look at the Bible that we have, that happened to begin before us, do we truly believe that this is God's revelation? 
Do we truly believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that God has spoken to us? Do we believe again that everything that happens to be in the law and the prophets came to us by this great God? Do we believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Because I have a sneaky suspicion when we, look at our, when we look at all of our lives that a lot of times we would profess yes to it. But when you look a little closer at our lives, how we interact with other people, how we interact with difficulties, how we interact with problems that happen to be in our life, I wonder if we truly believe this is the word of God. And we go down that same path many times of unbelief that Israel did. And that's what he really wants us to challenge us with this morning. I want us to challenge us to recognize what we have before us. You know, these are the living oracles. These is the living book. These are the living words of a holy God that are able to change us, able to direct our lives, able to function in our lives. And I, and I wanted to do it through two, two ways. One is I want us to go through verses 37 and 38, and I want us to tr tr uh, seek to understand them. And then after that, I just want to... Um, uh, give a few observations about our world and about our life and how they function in it. But let's just read through verses 37 and 38. And I want you to think about what is being said here because it says, this is the Moses, right, who said to the Israelites, and this is what he said. Remember, this is coming from God. If you reject this, you're not rejecting Moses, you're rejecting God. It says, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, and then it says, this is the one, still speaking of Moses, right? This is the one who is in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with his fathers, um, with his fathers, he receiving living oracles to give to them. You know, because I think a lot of times we discuss what's wrong with our world, you know? And people go, go, go off in this tangent and this, that, 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 that tangent. They might even get frustrated, because, well, what? It's easy to see beyond a shadow of a doubt that there's things that happen to be wrong in our world, right? Right? Our world says it wants peace, but you look at these, all these nations, now they war and fight against one another. What happens to be Israel or Hamas, whether it happens to be, again, the Ukraine and Russia, you know, all those nations that happen to, again, war against one another would profess this. We want peace. And yet here they are warring. And what's the problem? What's the problem even if we look at our society, even if we look at our city, that there's so much crime, there's so much violence, there's so much hatred that happens beginning them. What's the problem? What's the problem that there's so many broken relationships? I mean, how many relationships do you know that, that in your sphere of influence, in your sphere of life, that are absolutely broken? You know, that are absolutely painful. How many relationships? You know, and we say, what is the problem in our world that happens to be around here? And it's really easy. It, it isn't complicated. I mean, we, we could go about the nature of mankind. We could absolutely be, be right. But it's basically this. They have rejected what God has said. Isn't it true? They haven't sought the one true God. Think of it. You know, of all of the relationships that you know that happen to be there. They could be work, uh, they could be extended family, they could be your neighbors that are broken right now. Ask yourself this question. How many of them really seek the answers from God? I mean, have you ever thought about that? You know, we're a Bible-believing church, and yet in this next hour that we meet together, how many cars will drive by this Bible-believing church and never say, I wonder if there's a holy God in my life. Why am I here? Why are these difficulties and problems in my life? Is there any hope? Is there any eternity? Thousands, thousands will come by 
and never ask that question. And we ask, what's wrong in our world today? How many people really seek to God? We ask many times even the question, what's wrong with the church in general? As we look at the church, again, the, 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 the big picture of the church, what's wrong with the church? We see uh, churches many times adopting, again, the uh, doctrines of same-sex marriage and our, our alternative lifestyles are among their, their membership. You know, divorce on demand. There's nothing wrong with this. And what's wrong? It's, this is what's wrong. They have rejected what is very clear in God's word. And let me just say, all these issues that happen to be in God's word are absolutely clear. They have rejected this and decided to walk in their own wisdom. And let's get a little closer to home. Why is your life the way it is right now? Why is your marriage the way it is? Why is your family the way it is? Why do you feel like you're so built up on pride? You know, and, put, and you know what the gospel says about it's supposed to humble us. And yet you're pointing at other people as your difficulty, your problems, your sin that happened to be again in your life. Why do you go in that direction? You know, and, and here's the amazing thing, because we say this, but I'm going to challenge us again. Do we truly believe it? I mean, think of these words. Think of these words. God has spoken. Do you believe that? Because I think if we really believe that God wanted to communicate and tell us who he is and tell us about life and tell us about us and tell us about how to relate to him, we would be consumed with knowing his revelation. We would actually do something on Saturday night. You know what we do on Saturday night? We go to bed early. And why? Because I want to be refreshed. I want to get up early. I want to read the passage of Scripture that's going to be preached. I, wa I want to hear from God. There would be nothing more important. And you think, again, a lot of times we would be consumed with this. You know, this word, you know, this is God's word. And we get to hear it Sunday after Sunday. We get to take it home and study it. You think we would have a zeal, an enthusiasm, a desire to really understand this God of the word. Because this was a true fault of Israel in, in the wilderness. They refused to hear. They refused to submit. They refused to bow down and believe what God said through Moses, through this revelation. And certainly nothing has changed. Because think of the religious leaders. We revere Moses in everything that he did and everything that he said and everything that he showed us about God. But they reject the one whom Moses pointed to that was to come. You know, and you can see that in verse number 37. It says, this Moses who said to the Israelites, you can imagine the message to these religious leaders, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. And this is a famous quote, isn't it? It's taken from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse number 15. You know, and... You think, again, when you look at the life of Jesus, it's not very hard to tell that this is the one that happened to begin like Moses. You know, Moses did these signs, did these wonders. Jesus did these signs. In fact, greater signs, greater wonders than anything that was done in Egypt. You know, here Moses taught the people, taught the people how to, how to respond to God, who God was, you know, how to relate to him. Here Jesus Christ taught 
You know, and even the crowd says, he, you know, he's taught like no one has ever taught us. He teaches like one who has authority. He told them, <coughs> about what was to come. You know, he told them again all of these things because he understood it. And you would think that if you revered the ministry of Moses and what he taught about God and about what God would do, that you'd be consumed with the Old Testament to find, again, all of these things to realize that there is a Messiah coming. So much so that when he came on the world stage, you would recognize him. But here's the thing. That didn't happen, did it? It didn't happen. But what did the Jews do? Well, they altered some of it and left out some. So much so that when Messiah was to come, here, here it is, he would, be, he, he would come as this military leader to deliver them from all of the perils that happened at the beginning of their life. Everything external, but everything that they wanted would stay the same. And for the religious leaders, it would be their lives, their position. In fact, when Messiah came, he would applaud them for everything that they accomplished, everything that they had done in their lives. You know, and what he would do would just make their life better. You know, they would have their heaven that happened to begin here on earth. You know, and that's what they were looking for. And isn't it amazing when you look at that? That's exactly what people are looking for for Jesus Christ right now, from Jesus Christ right now. God, I have these health concerns if I just trust in Jesus. God, I have these uh, relational problems. God, if I just trust you enough. God, God, I have these problems again with my finances. If I just believe Jesus enough, and it's not about who we are, right? 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 It's about God delivering on our dreams. And I wonder how many times we look at God, we look at Jesus Christ, and we think, is he good? We're following Jesus Christ. Why? Because we really think he's going to deliver on our dreams. How often do we think that? And let me tell you, when Jesus came, he delivered us from something so much more superior, didn't he? He delivered us from not only the penalty of sin, praise God, we have an eternity with Christ, but here it is, the power of sin. Doesn't matter who I'm, who's in my life. Doesn't matter what situation I happen to be in. Doesn't matter, again, uh, what relationships that I have in my life. I can glorify him. I can praise him. I can follow him. This is Jesus. And let me just say, say this as clear as possible. This is the only Jesus. There's not alternative Jesus. Jesus. This is the only deliverer. And he makes that point that they've missed him. You know, but the amazing thing is that not only tells us about salvation, but it basically tells us about God. It tells us about life. It tells us, again, how to serve, how to follow, how to rejoice, how to glorify him. You know, and this is where, where Stephen goes, and he, and he talks about the giving of the law. And he talks about it again in Acts chapter 7 and beginning of verse number, th well, in verse number 38. He says, this is the one, speaking of Moses again, who, who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai uh, and, and with the fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. So here's Moses and he's before Mount Sinai. And here again, it's attended by God and he's giving this and attended by an angel. Now, who the angel is and what part he has in it, we're not told in the passage of Scripture. A lot of people think that this is a pre-incarnation of Christ, and it could be. You know, many times called a Christophany, 
are many times called a the, uh, the, uh, theophany. You know, but that's not the main intent. The main intent is about this revelation that has been given by God. You know, that's the main intent. You know, and I love it because it says that he's given living oracles, and this is what he says, living oracles to give to us. In other words, it's public. It's for us. It's not for God's benefit. It's for our benefit, and it's public, isn't it? These are living oracles that are given to to us. And I love how it's described. Living oracles. Now think about it. Because how could you really describe the word of God in a very accurate way to the people that happen to be again right there in, in that society? That they would understand, because Stephen is accused of speaking against the law, and he says, no, these are living oracles. You know, and what did he mean by living oracles? Well, first of all, you have to understand the word oracle. The oracle, again, was basically an ancient word. And it spoke again that God had spoke. So if you wanted to hear from the various different gods and goddesses, you, you would go to various different temples that were called oracles. And you would come with your sacrifice, you would come with your request, you would come with your question, and the oracle may speak and tell you that truth. And probably the most famous oracle was the Oracle of Delphi. And it was basically a temple of uh, Apollo. And when you went to it, again, there was a priestess who would meet you. And all of a sudden, you bring your gift, you bring your offering, you, you would seek wisdom, you would seek some sort of counsel, you would seek some sort of prophecy. And you would give that, and she would speak. And sometimes it was uh, ecstatic utterance, and her voice would, uh, would shake. And a priest would come up, and he would give the interpretation. Sometimes she gave, again, in an audible language. But the message was this. The god or the goddess was speaking, right? But the difference between these oracles of God is right here. Is that they're living oracles. Everything that these gods and goddesses would say would perish and die. Why? Because they were dead oracles. But what's the word of God? The word of God is living. Have you ever thought about that? You know, it's living. It's from God. It's absolutely authoritative. It's absolutely true. You know, and when you look at the Old Testament, when you look at the New Testament, the, um, the testimony is absolutely dynamic. These are the authoritative, absolutely sufficient words of God that are sufficient for everything in life and godliness, able to do what we cannot do. You know, uh, Hebrews chapter 4, talking about the Old Testament, but also talking about the New Testament, says this, for the word of God is living and active. What does it do? Sharper than any two-edged sword. And what does it pierce? Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. And this is what it does. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature, when this word is preached, when this God is known, and no creature is hidden from his sight. But we are all naked and exposed, right? We're all ripped open by this word, by this living, active word, exposed to the eyes of him. To, to, of him to whom we must give an account. And I think that's a great exposition of living oracles. Because this word, this scripture, can do what nothing else can do. You know, it can, 
It can cut, it can heal, it can convict, it can encourage, it can rebuke, it can turn, it can teach, it can change, it can alter, it can enliven, it can correct, it can instruct, it can fashion, it can mold, it can alter, it can rebuild, mend, excite. It can change us into the image of our blessed Lord. It can do what nothing else in this world can do. The scriptures are living and powerful. And we shouldn't be surprised because their source is from this amazing God. And along with the spirit of God, they're able to give life, aren't they? In fact, listen to the description. And this is by inspiration of the Holy Spirit over in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse number 23. It says this, since you have been born again. Now think of it. How have we been born again? And he tells us, listen to what he says, not by perishable seed, right? Not by some, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> empty, <coughs> empty philosophy that happens to be again out there, but imperishable. Through what? Through the living and abiding word of God. And then he talks about all the other philosophies, all the other ways of life that happen to be again around us by quoting the Old Testament. All flesh is like grass, and all the glory of the grass, like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flowers fail, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the word. This And this word is the good news that is preached to you. Right? Everything else fails. All the other philosophies that happen to be out there, all the other ways of making, uh, trying to make life work, all fail. But the good news of the gospel, the good news of a life through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice continues on. And let me just make a quick, a few quick observations again about that. Because, you know, a lot of times we say, well, what do you mean by the living word of God? And let me, let me give a couple of ways that I mean by the living word of God. And one of the ways that I mean by the living word of God is the word of God is the word of God is truth. Not a truth, but capital T, the truth. Right? Everything bows beneath the truth of God's word. And when you look at it, there's been all sorts of ways to explain again life. In fact, when this book is being written, you know, what happens to be again at the pinnacle is Greek philosophy. Now, how many of you study Greek philosophy in school? Okay, let me, let me just give you three quick, quick uh, Greek philosophies. You know, and one of them again is called Stoicism. And Stoicism are, sometimes we can say somebody's a Stoic, and they're very wooden, they're very hard, they're very, that, that's their demeanor. And Stoicism basically taught that whatever will be, will be. You cannot alter history. You know, so if I am meant to come over here, come over the stairs and fall down the stairs, there's nothing I can do about it. So, so, so if that is the purpose, and God's an impersonal God, he's just made all these things up, and there's no way that you could ever alter them, I might as well just throw myself down the stairs. And why? Because I can't stop it anyways. So I might as well just do it. And, and there was a fatalism there that happened to be there. We're just stuck in life, and there is nothing that I can do about it. You know, and that was basically what was taught. It was very popular among the emperors. And the reason why it was taught, taught with the emperors, again, if, if life is the way that it's made of it, then I'm made to be right here. You know, another philosophy happens to be sophism. 
Anosophis, again, uh, comes from the Greek word which, Sophia, which means wisdom. And they were, love, uh, they were in love with wisdom. And one of the greatest wise statements that they ever made was this, all truth fluctuates. Which is a true statement, isn't it? All truth fluctuates? You know, that's a true statement, which is, which is a denial that all truth fluctuates. But it was basically this, whatever's true for you doesn't mean it's true for me. Whatever's right for me at this time might not be right for you. You know, whatever's right in this situation might have been right in this situation for me at one time, but it's no longer right for me. You know, so it's basically this. Dude, do whatever you want, right? Right, because truth fluctuates. If you, if you have to steal, if you have to murder, if you have to do anything that you want to do, fornicate, whatever you want to do, go ahead and do it because it's right for you in that situation. You know, and really, when you look at societies, society is based upon right and wrong. You, you can't have a society. You know, you end up with an anarchy. In fact, you can't have in relationships unless there's relationships, unless there's a way that I treat somebody that's right, and there's a way that I treat someone that's wrong, and I accept those things. You know, and then Epicureanism. Ep Ep Epicurus taught basically this, that we only go around once. You know, some of that's very popular today. So it's basically this, you might as well get as much of this life as you can. You know, and really, it had no thought, it had no compassion on those who were suffering that happened to begin in your life. But why? Because it was all about me. There was no purpose, there was no rhyme, there was no reason. You only go around once, get as much joy, get as much pleasure in your life as you can. Now think about it, because these philosophies raise their heads up, you know, here and there, but here's the thing about all these philosophies. They're all dead. They're studied in academia. They're not studied again in universities. This is a good way of life. This is a good way of life. This is a good way of life. And why? Because they're all dead. And they all failed. And here's the difference of the word of God. The word of God is what? Living oracles, 2,000 years later, and what we're we talking about? Jesus Christ, him crucified, risen from the grave as our only hope, the only explanation of the human condition, and the only hope that we have for all of eternity. What's the difference? One is living, and one is dead. And think about it, why would we ever fight against the word of God? Why, why would we ever struggle? If it tells us something that's so clear that happens to be again in the word of God, why would we ever fight? Because that's exactly what the Sanhedrin are doing. You know, they're fighting, they're rejecting this truth about Jesus. In fact, again, they even hate him and hate this truth about Jesus. But here's the thing you have to realize about truth. Truth is truth whether I want to believe it or not. Right? It's true. Right? Green light. I might want, or here's a better one, red light. I might want to believe it's a, it's, it's go. And I might want to believe it with all my heart, but let me tell you, it's going to have disastrous effects that happen to me in my life. Right? How many sophists do you know? Well, just go to a long staircase and see how many people throw themselves down the long staircase. You know, it's a dead philosophy. You know, let me just make one more point before I move on to my second, po uh, second point again about this being living oracles, and it's basically this. You know, this truth, because it's living truth, is continually true. Right? 
And why I say that is because there's going to be new philosophies, new repackaged philosophies that happen to begin out there that will say, this is the answer to the human condition. This is the answer to the human heart. If you follow this philosophy, you can make life work. And one of the greatest philosophies that are, that, that are in our world today, and it's a dead philosophy, is this. This is the way it explains life. This is the way it explains our aberrant behavior. You have a mental disorder and not a sinful disorder. Wow. Now, some of you are starting to squirm in your seat. Right? This is the way it is. You know, I don't have a sin problem. I have a physical problem. Right? And let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, sometimes it seems like a disease. Sometimes it seems physical because we're all made differently. And I have different propensities, I have different strengths, I have different weaknesses that you do. And we might look at ourselves and say, oh, that's the way I'm made. My problem is genetics. It is not sin. And let me say beyond a shadow of a doubt, that is a dead philosophy and a lie from the pit of Someone help me out here. Hell. Here's the thing about all the psychologists and the psychiatrists. They'll say, you know, you've got some sort of environmental problem, you've got some sort of genetic problem, you've got some sort of physical disorder, but none of them agree on how to treat it. Right? Someone say, well, group counsel... You know, you need to get in a room with all the other people who struggle with the same thing that you struggle with. And if you hear all of these things, you'll, you'll, you'll uh, be, be able to eat, at least live with it. Some say one-on-one counsel. Some say drugs. You know, there's chemical imbalance. If you just take these, you know, it'll alter your brain, and all of a sudden you'll be, you, 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 you won't have that convulsion anymore. Now, here's the question. Why can't they all agree that this is the way to treat it? The reason why is because, and I want you to hear this, because mental disorders is a philosophy. It's not science. It's a philosophy. This is how I explain your disorder. This is how I explain your aberrant behavior without God. Right? And it's doomed to failure. You know, it seems right. It seems to explain... Um, my, my aberrant behavior? Let me, let me ask you this question. How many, how many of you know, because this is a little closer to home, rather than the Greeks that happen to be over there, how many of you know Freud's id? Freud's the uh, father of modern uh, psychiatry, psychiatry, and his famous, again, uh, philosophy was the id. How, how, how many are you familiar with that? Because it deals with our sex when we're a baby, right? And I'm talking about a, uh, our sexual nature when we're a baby and what we wanted from our mother and couldn't get from our mother. And all other problems could go there. Now, when you, when you hear about his id, you're saying, that's bizarre. And guess what? It's not taught anymore. And guess why? Guess why? Father of modern psych, psychiatry. This is why. Because it is a philosophy that's raised its head up against God. And guess what it does? Same as sophistry. Same as Epicureanism. Same as the Stoics. It dies. But what's, this, what's God's word? 
living oracles. This came from the true God that happened to be again above. And let me just name one other thing before we close our time together, one other element about these living oracles. And that is, again, it boldens life. It transforms us. The word of God transforms us. I mean, a lot of times when we hear a scripture, we're here, you know, we're angry, we're lustful, again, or we're despondent, or we're hopeless. It happened to begin over here. We hear the word of God preached to us. We hear the word of God presented to us. And it's incredible how the God of the word changes our hearts. And why? Because it's this. It's absolutely powerful. It's able to do in our life what nothing else can do. All these philosophies can give us a buzz, but they can't change our character. God's words can. It's described this way in Jeremiah chapter 23. In verse number 29, it says this, Is not my word like fire? Now, what does fire do? Right? What does fire do? It consumes Right? And, 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 and fire was so often used, again, as a metaphor for purifying, wasn't it? You have gold, you have silver, there's all this dross, you burn it, and what's left? That which is pure. You know, and that's what the word does, doesn't it? It consumes those things that happen to begin in our life, the, all those false philosophies, all those false ways of thinking and acting and behaving, and it transforms our character. But he goes on, it, it is not... It is, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rocks in pieces. Right? Look at this heart. And what God is doing is carving out a trophy of his grace. And how does he do it? He does it through his powerful word. I mean, think about it. Have you ever thought about how powerful God's word is? Have you ever thought about that? Right? Genesis 1-3, God says this. Let there be light. Now, here's a question. Right? God just said it. Spoke it. Where'd the light come from? And most people say, well, sun, moon, and stars. Uh-uh, not till day five. Where's the light come from? God spoke. Let there be light. And in the midst of darkness, guess what there was? Separate the night from the day. Guess what there is? There's light. And why? Because God's word is powerful. It can do what nothing else can do. And think of our spiritual lives, because when we think of our spiritual lives, this powerful word can give light and life. Again, that's why when Paul went to Corinth, Corinth was alive, right? It was this Greek city, and they were alive, and they had so many problems and so many difficulties. They were sinning against one another. There was sexual immorality. There was false teaching that happened to begin on the resurrection. They were using their spiritual gifts to, to, to build them up. There was division and factionalism that happened to begin in the church. And there was all these things, and they were alive with this. Wisdom, sophistry. And how, how did Paul go to them? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he begins it this way. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not pro- come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. In other words, the way man would do it. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, why would he do that? Well, listen how he goes. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but this is what they were, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And this is why. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men. But what? 
the power of God. Right? Through what? The preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a power of God in a particular message. You know, that's why Paul says, right? 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 So often we're scared of the gospel. Oh, man, there's that person over there, and I don't know if I can preach the gospel to them. Well, what, why do I believe about the gospel? What do I believe about it? This is what Paul believes. In Romans chapter 1 and verse number 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also the Greek. Why am I not ashamed? Because it can do what I cannot do. You know, why do I proclaim it? Because it can do what I cannot do. It can bring repentance. It can bring faith. And how about us? Where's our confidence? What do we believe about the Bible? How important is it to us to say God has spoken? Do we submit to God in obedience, learning and following what he said through the scriptures? Do we preach the message to others, realizing beyond a shadow of a doubt, this is what they know. And God can use that because God's word is powerful. It really can change them. It has the power to change others' lives. But let me ask you this one question in closing. Do you believe it has the power, God has the power through his word to change you? Do you believe it? And if we say yes and amen, Let's be people of the book and hear what God has spoken. Let's bow our hearts for a moment of prayer. Father, it's so easy. Many times we want to easy answers. We want answers that please us. And yet the, the scripture says that I'm a responsible sinner that have shamed your name, that have trampled your worth underfoot, and have done it wantingly and willfully. Lord, that have treated others not as image bearers. Lord, that what has come through my heart, what has come out of my lips, Lord, are murders in all sorts of sin. And Lord, when we hear these words, we want a philosophy. We want some sort of, and if we could put it in quotation marks, truth that will exonerate us, that we're really not that bad. But Lord, we realize when we see the bad news and recognize really how horrendous it is, God, we see the good news that one has come so different from us. Lord, that he's fulfilled the law and he's died in my stead that I might have life. Lord, not only eternal life, but life in the here and now where I can really follow you, I can really obey you, 
I can really study your word, Lord. And as I look into your word, as I hear your word, Lord, through your spirit, it can really alter my life. It can alter my marriage. It can alter my family. It can alter, Lord, from the core of my being who I am. And Lord, a lot of times we give lip service to this. But a lot of times, Lord, when it comes to the trials, comes to the difficulties, comes to our wilderness wanderings like Israel, so many times we doubt. So many times we become frustrated. So many times we go in faulty directions. So many times we believe false philosophies and dead philosophies. I just ask that you would be with each member of our congregation, Lord, even those who happen to begin visiting. Lord, and help us. Help us to see the truth of Christ. Help us, Lord, to re realize, regardless of the situation that happens to begin in our life, that we can believe, we can trust Christ, we can follow him and make much of him. Help us to trust in him. We thank you so much. Just be with us, Lord, as we go now. In Christ's name, amen.